Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verse 11? Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And the passage says this. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. For our focus this morning, I want to borrow from that phrase at the beginning of the passage in verse 11, knowing the time. Knowing the time here doesn't mean knowing the time on a clock. Although, if you were to pick out a group of people that are the best at knowing the time on a clock, church people are the best at knowing the time on a clock of any group of people in all the world. Preachers, not so much. This preacher in particular, not so much. Knowing the time here means knowing the age, knowing the day, knowing the season, knowing the occasion. Jesus spoke to man's inability to do this properly in Matthew chapter 16, verse 3. He said, you know how to read the appearance of the sky. That is, you know how to read the signs of the sky, the signs of the weather. And we are equally adept at reading the signs of other things. But he went on to say, but you can't read the signs of the times. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32 it was said about the Iscarites, and we read this passage and studied it and even brought it up in our Sunday night discussion of what we've been reading in the Bible this year. It said about this tribe, these men from the tribe of Issachar, they understood the times. They understood the times and knew what Israel should do. It's in this sense that this passage compels us to think about knowing the time. Knowing the time means knowing that it's time to wake up. I don't think we're far enough in the sermon for that to be literally applicable this morning, but it's still applicable. Knowing the time means knowing that it's time to wake up. And I take that from verse 11. Look there again. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. 
For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So it's time for us to wake up from our sleep. I know that you know what sleepy is. I know what sleepy is. But as a help to us, I looked it up in the dictionary this week. And sleep is defined as a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. Doesn't that describe so many of us? Doesn't that describe many Christians? Doesn't that describe much of the church? Even many churches? Spiritually unconscious. Spiritually unresponsive. Spiritually inactive. Does sleep describe you spiritually? Where you are right now? What you're doing or not doing for the Lord right now? Does sleep describe you spiritually? If so, it's time to wake up. Waking up spiritually begins with realizing that you're asleep. Have you ever been asleep and not realized it? Sunday afternoon is one of those rare times for me where one moment I will be awake and the next moment the kids have scared the dickens out of me and made me aware of the fact that I had fallen asleep. Wouldn't you join with me in praying this morning that uh, this passage would be what does that for us? For those of us that are spiritually asleep, that this would be the passage that startles us to being awakened. In that way, maybe this passage would serve as an alarm clock for us. But when you really look at verse 11... It's not just that the alarm clock has just started going off. It says it's already the hour. And that would indicate to us that the hour has already come, that the alarm clock, if you will, has already been going off. For most of us, this isn't the first time that we've heard a passage like this or a sermon like this or the Lord has brought to our attention our need to spiritually wake up. All of those are alarm clock occasions. And for some of us, the alarm clock has been going off for quite some time. And what we've done, like many of us do physically, is we have mashed the snooze button. And maybe right now some of you are already checking out on this and you're mashing the snooze button. And you're saying, I'll listen to this, I'll respond to this another day, another sermon, another time. And you just mash that snooze button thinking, I have more time to sleep, but you don't. We don't. It's time to wake up right now it's already been time to wake up that's what this passage is getting at 
It's time for us to wake up because of the nearness of our salvation. It says in verse 11 that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now he's not talking about initial salvation there. He's not speaking to the saved and saying, you know what, you really need to get saved. That's not what he's doing here. He's talking about the completion of our salvation. One of the things I can remember growing up in Baptist churches, particularly in sessions like training union, what became discipleship training, is that we believe that the Bible teaches that we have been saved, That's justification. We believe that the Bible teaches that we are being saved. That is sanctification. And we believe that the Bible teaches that we will be saved. That's glorification. Well, glorification is what he's speaking of here. And we've already seen the idea, the doctrine, the teaching of glorification in the book of Romans. One passage in particular is chapter 8, verse 23. It says, and not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruit, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, for the full benefits of our adoption, he's speaking of there, for our glorification, which is the redemption of our bodies. And this will happen, this completion of our salvation will happen when Jesus comes again. Or it will begin to happen when we die. Either way, it's imminent. Do you know what the word imminent means? It could happen at any moment. Jesus could return at any moment. A truth that we say we believe, but our actions indicate otherwise. We could die at any moment. Yet again, a truth that we say that we believe, but our actions indicate otherwise. We are in the last days. And I'm not like one of those television preachers with their flow charts on how everything's going to go in the future and predicting that it's going to happen on this day, this year, this week, this moment when I say that we're in the last days. I'm not making a prediction about when Jesus is going to come back. I'm quite confident that if he and his humanity didn't know when he was going to come again, that I don't either. Nor do you. Nor does anyone else for that matter so save yourself some money the next time you're in the Christian bookstore and don't buy their books when I say that we're in the last days I'm saying that we're in a period of time we're in an age a time that has been in existence since the first coming of Jesus where his return could happen at any moment we're like the cuckoo clock in a home that I heard about that had something go wrong with it and it struck 15 times. And when the little boy in the house 
was counting up how many times it struck, and he got to 15. He ran to his mother and said, Mommy, 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 it's later than it's ever been before. That's what this passage is saying. It's later than it's ever been before. Do you realize that? You are closer to your death than you ever have been before. Aren't you glad you got up and got dressed just to hear that this morning? No group of people has ever been closer to the second coming of Jesus than we are at this moment. It's later than it's ever been before. That's what Jesus meant when he said, be ready. That's what he meant when he said, be alert. That's what he meant when he said, be watching. It's what the Bible means when it uses a phrase like, be sober. The nearness of his return, the imminence of the completion of our salvation should motivate us to wake up. And we literally see that connection time after time after time after time in Scripture. But I want to show you very quickly three passages that make that connection between our knowing the nearness of the completion of our salvation and the impact that it should have on our life. The first is James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Turn there with me, if you would. James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Your 10 seconds for the Bible drill is about to be up. James chapter 5, verse 8. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near, imminent. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. That's a a command, an imperative about how we're to live or not to live. What's the impetus? Look, the judge stands at the door. And that communicates imminence, doesn't it? Flip back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. An even more well-known passage that makes this connection between Waking up spiritually, changing our behavior spiritually, and the return of Jesus. It says here, and let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day would be the day of the completion of our salvation, the return of Jesus. And this continues to be a theme in Scripture right up to the last words of Scripture, the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. Jesus said, let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy go on being made filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy go on being made holy. For look, I am coming quickly. I could come at any time and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. So you see, it's time to wake up. 
And waking up is revival. A word that I've heard already this morning, a word that we use often, it's what we need to be awakened, right? It's why we pray for it, because we need revival. We need to be awakened. It's what we're praying for, that we, beginning with me, would be awakened to full consciousness it's why we sing songs like revive us again and lord send a revival and a newer song shine jesus shine it's time to wake up so knowing the time means that it's time to wake up knowing the time also means knowing that it's time to get up And I take this from the first part of verse 12 in our passage today. It says, The night is nearly over, and the daylight is near, so let us. Therefore, let us, and then he mentions the things that we ought to do. Did you know there's a difference between waking up and getting up? I'm reminded of that every morning. The waking up is not so difficult. The getting up, on the other hand, is extremely difficult. This morning, my bed with magnetic force was drawing my body back into it, not letting go. Awake, but not wanting to get up. This is a a lesson that I demonstrated growing up, and it's a lesson that is being visited on my head and Cheryl's head over and over again, replaying every day in our home. Here's how it goes. Hey, kids, it's time to get up. Okay. A few minutes go by. Hey, kids, it's time to get up. I'm up. A few minutes go by. Hey, hey, it's time to get up. No, about this time, Cheryl does it the first couple of times, and then she comes and says, you've got to get them up. And so I go in and I say, in a not-so-nice voice, because the rule in our house is if you want me to be happy, then keep your mama happy. If your mama's not happy, then I'm really unhappy. And I say, get up. And inevitably, here's the response I get from a child still within the confines of the bed. I'm up. And I'm like, no, you're not up. Do you understand the concept of up? Up means up. There's a difference between waking up and getting up. That old Chinese proverb says the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And for us, waking up and then getting up is that first step, spiritually speaking. Several years ago, a book was written in which the question was posed, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is, one bite at a time. One bite at a time. And the first bite is waking up and getting up. By getting up, I'm talking about starting. I'm talking about getting going, going to work, 
doing something. And that's what he communicates here when he says, because night is nearly over and the daylight is near, so let us do, get going. The night is nearly over, it says, meaning sleep time is over. The spiritual application being that apathy time is over, believer. Night is nearly over, meaning playtime is over. Because in this passage, you can even see it, there's a connection between playing and and revelry and the nighttime. Playtime is over. The spiritual application being that sin time is over. Night is nearly over, meaning that this lifetime is almost over. Even if you think you've only just begun, it's almost in the grand scheme of things over. Night is nearly over, meaning this time, this day, this age is almost over. The absence of Christ is almost over. We're living in the spiritual night, but the sunrise is coming. Daylight is near. The dawn of Christ's coming is at hand. Our new life, or the life to come, is almost here. It's daytime, meaning it's time to work. It's light time, meaning that it's time to live in the light. It's time to get up. Knowing the time means it's means knowing that it's time to get up. Knowing the time also means knowing that it's time to clean up. And these next verses that I'm going to read for you were verses that God used to save the man who would become the most important theologian in the history of the church after the founding of the church and the New Testament era. Augustine is his name. And as an adult, he lived a life that was dominated by sin. He was a slave to his fleshly desires, a slave to sexual immorality, and it was about to kill him. And one day, he was in his garden, in his yard is southern language for it. And he was overwhelmed with it all and tired of fighting the battle and dealing with that struggle that, that so many have dealt with. And he heard as if a voice from God coming from the yard next to him across the wall, the voice of a little girl who was saying these words over and over again, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And so he did just that, and he picked up a scroll containing the letter to the Roman church that we find here in the Bible, and he turned in it, and the first words that he read were these, beginning in verse 13. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. And he was reborn as he read those words. His life transformed and changed, and we're all the better for it. From verse 13, 
what we learn here is that knowing the time means knowing that it's time to clean up. You know, the first thing I do every morning after I wake up and I get up, I go start cleaning up. I clean up my teeth. They need cleaning. I clean up my body. I would say that I clean up my hair, but that's been taken care of. I start cleaning up. It's time for us to clean up the way that we live. Verse 13 says that we are to walk with decency. Decency implying cleanness, purity, holiness. And I want you to note the word for our Christian life that he chooses to use here and elsewhere. It's the word walk. Walking being steady progress. Maybe even slow progress, but consistent progress. It's not always fast. The Christian life is not always a sprint. There are times that we need to sprint. There are times that we need to run. Times that we need to jog. But over the long haul, it is a walk. Steady progress. It's time to clean up means that it's time to change from our sleep attire to our daytime life attire. It means that it's time to change from the darkness to the daylight. And that's a common contrast in Scripture, isn't it? Between the darkness and the light. John chapter 3, Jesus talks about it. The end of the chapter. When he says that the people who do deeds of darkness, they don't like the light. They stay away from the light. Why? Because the light exposes their dark deeds. Makes them like roaches in that way. It is no coincidence that crime increases exponentially once the sun goes down. Why is that? Because the cover of darkness grants security to those who want to do wrong, making them think and rightly so, that it's harder for people to see them doing the wrong that they do. And by waiting to the nighttime to do the typical deeds of darkness, the person who does it is already condemning him or herself that what they're doing is wrong. Because if it weren't wrong, you could do it any time, couldn't you? In 1 John 1, verse 5, it says, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And then it goes on to speak sobering words to every person who calls himself a Christian but does not live a life that's consistent with the God he claims to serve or consistent with the message of Christianity in the Bible. And it says if you say you're in the light but you walk in the darkness, you're not in the light. You can say you're in the light all that you want to, but if you live a life that's dominated by darkness... You're in the darkness, and you're still in the darkness, never having come into the light. It's time for us to clean up, to change, by changing from the darkness to decency. 
That's the wording here. Meaning that it's time for us to change from the dirty things that we do or the dirty things that we used to do, the dirty things that the world does to clean things, the things of God. And just so that we won't be left in the dark as to what deeds of the darkness are, he gives us some deeds of darkness here, doesn't he? Six of them in three pairs. The first pair is carousing and drunkenness. Drunkenness is sort of self-explanatory. And it's always associated with the first word, carousing. Am I wrong in saying that nothing good has ever resulted from drunkenness? Nothing good. Yet person after person, it's their go-to thing. Person after person buys into the lie that uh, this is going to make my life better. And it never does. Carousing is a word that was used in their language of wild partying, violent rioting. Orgies is sometimes the way that it's translated here. And there's a connection again between the drunkenness and this. This is what we're to be running from, changing from. The second pair of words is sexual impurity and promiscuity. Sexual impurity meaning promiscuity itself, sexual immorality of any kind, sexual immorality being sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Promiscuity is a stronger word or was in their language the word that's translated promiscuity. Sometimes it's translated as debauchery. Or lasciviousness. It was not just speaking of, of routine, as if there is any routine sexual immorality, but sexual immorality of the, the worst kind. But even more than speaking of the specific type of sexual immorality, it was speaking of the behavior of one who does it and has no second thought about doing it. Conscience is not bothered at all in taking part in it. And then the third pair of words that define the darkness are quarreling and jealousy. Jealousy is envying and selfish ambition. And I won't go any further because I I think we understand what jealousy is and the evil that's associated with it and, and the negative impact that it has in our life and in the church. Quarreling is a word I want to spend just a bit more time on Quarreling, the word that's translated quarreling here, is strife. Persistent contention, bickering, petty disagreement, enmity. It was used of a person who had a spirit of antagonistic competitiveness that fights to have its own way, regardless of what it costs self or others. It was caused by and is caused by a deep desire to prevail over others, to gain the highest prestige and prominence and recognition possible. It's characterized by self-indulgence and one who is consumed with, with ego. Now, the more important point I want to make about quarreling 
and jealousy is notice what it's lumped with. Notice what these two words are connected to. Did you get it? Are we not guilty of taking the first four words here and giving them their own category of sinfulness and then you come to something among the people of God and within the church like quarreling and jealousy and and while we may acknowledge it as sin it is seen as far less severe sin let's not make that mistake it's just as dangerous among the people of God just as deadly and just as ugly strife and quarreling are in first Peter chapter 4 verse 3 it says for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do who's with me on that Haven't we already spent enough time doing what the world does? Haven't we already spent enough time in sin and in doing what we want to do? Carrying on, it says here, in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, you can turn there with me if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. It says, For you were once darkness, but you are now in the light. You are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That is, be who you already are, Christian. For the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made clear, for what makes everything clear is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. It's time to wake up. It's time to get up. It's time to clean up. Knowing the time means knowing it's time to clean up. And then finally, knowing the time means knowing that it's time to dress up. After I chose this wording, I thought of the negative connotation, the negative connotation that is with the phrase dress up. You know, as as a a, a father of sons, there are certain things that I don't want my sons doing. Playing dress-up is one of those. Particularly when playing dress-up involves dresses. But you know what I mean, and I think you'll you'll know what I mean as we make our way here. It's time to dress-up. Look at the end of verse 12 in our passage. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on... The armor of light. And then verse 14, this dressing uh, metaphor or analogy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. For most of us, the clothes that we dress in are determined by what we have to do at that moment, right? This past Monday, I did 
lunch club with the youth for Jason, and so I showed up to the office in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt and tennis shoes. And Scott walked into the office, and he said to me in a, you need to pray for Scott, in a very looking down sort of way, he said, well, boy, don't you look pastoral today. And I said, I'm not trying to look pastoral. I'm trying to look youth pastoral today. But he was right. Those clothes didn't fit what I normally have to do. In, in, on the other hand, in the same way, I show up at football practice every once in a while in a pair of dress slacks because I haven't had time to change. And inevitably, I'm going to hear something like this. You sure are dressed up to be at football practice. In both of those examples, what I had on didn't fit what I had to do. It was out of place. And when I say here, when the Scripture says here it's time for us to dress up, it means it's time for us to change. It says that we are to discard the deeds of darkness. If the sin that characterizes the world and the sin that characterizes the lost person are deeds of darkness if the things we used to do and the things we still struggle with in sin are deeds of darkness and they're compared to clothing think about it this way those sins are no longer in style for the believer they don't fit the believer they're inappropriate for the believer they're out of place for the believer so much so that if you find yourself wearing them and somebody sees you as a professing believer doing those things, they are going to do exactly what Scott did, exactly what ball players will do, and make a comment, if, if not out loud, then at least in their mind, they ought not be doing that. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, let us lay aside. That's the same as the word discard. And those of you that still have those big bell-bottom pants and shirts that are with collars that are this long, you don't need to hold on to that hoping that it's going to come back in style. You need to discard it. Because there's a danger your husband could pick it out and wear it one day. You need to bury it. You need to burn it. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. For this same reason, it's not enough to just push it to the back of the closet. We need to get rid of it altogether. Lay it aside because we'll put it back on and it will trip us up in our race. And while it tells us to, to put certain things aside, to take them off, if you will, it also tells us to replace those with something else. And this is revolutionary in my mind, and it's been there all along in the Bible. Even Christians have struggled with getting rid of bad behaviors, sinful behaviors in their life. And one of the reasons that we struggle is for us, it's simply about not doing those things any longer when the Bible has much more to say. In addition to telling us not to do those things, it says we are to replace those things with something else. And that something else would be the doing of good or the doing of, of what is right in contrast to the wrong that we've done. We are to, says here, uh, it says here, put on the armor of light. 
in the place of the deeds of darkness. We are to say, uh, it says here we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that not just Jesus, but the Lordship of Jesus we're to put on. Now there's a sense in which we've already put Jesus on. Salvation, justification, we have put on Christ. But there's also a sense in, what, in which daily we must continue to put Jesus on. This is sanctification. We must make the decision every day to put on clothes of righteousness, character that's in line with Jesus. That's the sense that's being used here. When I say that it's time for us to dress up, I mean because the Scripture here means that it's time for us to dress up for battle. Do you get that? We are at battle. And many of us are just wearing our leisure gear for the battle. Armor is a repeated word and theme within Scripture for what the Christian is to wear. Ephesians 6 talks a lot about it. Because we are at war. And what's sad is that so many are asleep, ignorant of the fact that there's a war going on. And many more are unarmed and unprotected in this war. When I say that we're at battle, I mean that we are to dress up. It's time for us to dress up to do battle against the darkness. That was the word in verse 12. The darkness being Satan and sin. And the solution for it is the armor of light. I also mean that it's time for us to dress up for battle against our flesh. That's what verse 14 talks about. The battle against our flesh. And it's a big battle, right? We've already studied the end of chapter 7. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. I've discovered there's a principle of sin working in me. Who's going to rescue me from it? Thank you for Jesus. He's the one. Chapter 8, verse 23, I've already alluded to. We are longing for the redemption of our bodies. Our spirits have been redeemed, but our bodies still have sin. That's why we do battle against this flesh. And that's why this passage says that we are to make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. We are to make no provision for our flesh to win. But we always are doing it. When it says don't make provision for it or make no plans for our flesh, it means don't purposely put yourself in a situation where your fleshly desires could be awakened. If you know it's going to do that, don't watch that. Don't go there. Don't read that. Don't be around that person. And then we wonder why we fail. It's because we don't just sin. The depth of our sinfulness is seen in the fact that even as the people of God, there are times when we plan to sin. And in so doing, we make provision for the flesh. There's so much more that I want to say, but I can't. So many other passages that I'd love to share with you, but I can't. But it's time to dress up. Knowing the time means knowing that it's time to wake up and get up and clean up and dress up. 
Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first 11 verses this afternoon. Sort of summarizes, parallels the passage that we've looked at today. I think you've been able to figure out that knowing the time is primarily a message for Christians. But there's also application for the lost. If you're lost, if you know you're lost, if you know you aren't trusting on Jesus to save you, if you know you haven't, if you know your life's never been changed, or if you think you're lost or worried that you're lost, it's important that you know the time too. It's important that you know the imminency of the return of Christ, the imminency of your own death. It's important that you know that we are in the last days. You need to wake up. And Christian, we need to pray that God would wake them up. Because a lost person doesn't even know they're asleep for the most part. So they can't pray that they'd wake up. If you have an inkling that you're asleep, you begin to pray that God would wake you up. You need to get up and make a move toward Jesus. You need to be cleaned up. I'd say clean up, but you can't clean yourself up. Quit trying. You need Jesus to clean you up. You need to dress up with the righteousness of Jesus to replace your sin. And it can be yours. It can clothe you through faith in him. This is the good news, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that he's lived a perfect life, that he's died on the cross to take the punishment for sinners, that he's risen from the grave to conquer death, so that everyone who repents of their sin and believes on him will be saved, forgiven, given eternal life, made right with God. So you see, knowing the time is important. 